Up next, Senator Susan Collins. She hails from Caribou, Maine. She is the uh, parents who had six children. And believe it or not, both her parents were mayors of the hometown. So it's definitely in her blood that she would run for office after becoming student council president <laughs> in her high school. Uh, and also um, working in the legislature with uh, right here in Congress at one point in her career and seeking the office of governor where she learned a very valuable lesson when she lost, it didn't stop her and yet in the 90s, she decided to try it again against a formidable candidate. She decided to run for the U.S. Senate, and she won. And she was endorsed by the incumbent, William Cohen, who went on to serve as Secretary of Defense during the administration of Bill Clinton. Let us welcome our guest to the show today, the Honorable Senator Susan Collins, who hails from Maine. Thank Senator, you. thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. What did you learn from your parents and your great-grandparents who were in the lumber business? I learned that you can make a difference by getting involved in your community. I remember sitting around our family dinner table and my mother telling me that you had no right to complain if you were staying on the sidelines and weren't willing to get involved and give up your energy and commitment to solving problems. And that lesson always stayed with me that you could make a difference. I felt empowered by the example of my parents. You, you know, your father was a World War II veteran. How much has that influenced you? Oh, he was the one who taught me to honor our veterans. And one of my earliest memories is going to the Memorial Day Parade in Caribou and his hoisting me high on his shoulders so that I could see the flag and our veterans march by. He was very proud of his World War II service. He was wounded twice in the Battle of the Bulge. I have his Purple Heart. He earned a Bronze Star as well. And he was truly my hero growing up and taught me to be so thankful to those who put their lives on the line for our country and our freedoms. Let me stay with the theme uh, of, your, of your father. Obviously, he was an entrepreneur. And at one point in your career, before becoming a United States Senator, though it was brief, um, former President H.W. Bush appointed you as the regional administrator of the Small Business Administration for the Boston area. You know, entrepreneurs create jobs. Talk about the importance of entrepreneurship to the marketplace and the economy. Entrepreneurship is absolutely essential to creating jobs, producing new products and services, and moving our economy forward. They are particularly important in a small state like Maine. It is our small businesses that create the vast majority of new jobs in the state of Maine and in this country. And what I admire the most about entrepreneurs is I've seen many of them who did not succeed the first time, but they pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and try again. And they really are critical 
to the vibrancy of our economy. Being the New England head of SBA in the first President Bush's administration was such a wonderful job. I took over at a time when banks were failing in New England. So the SBA played a critical role. We went into the portfolios of failed banks and took out the good small business loans and the lines of credit and helped them find a new bank and put an SBA guarantee on it so that the new bank would accept the risk. And we saved so many small businesses and thousands of jobs throughout New England with that program. So really was an example if I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you, it was a, a great program that President Bush initiated. You know, whether it's former President Ronald Reagan, uh, his predecessor George Bush, Herbert Walker Bush, or Bill Clinton, uh, Bush the son, or whether it's Barack Obama, uh, Donald Trump, who's now in the White House, what causes the shifts in terms of the economy? Is it the taxes? Uh, and why is it that you think that some people, no matter what the economy is, and no, what, no matter what the headwinds, they're able to survive. But it seems as though those are in the lower class always stay in the lower class, and they don't always come out of this thing that we call poverty in the middle class. What has changed? It's certainly not necessarily, is it the administration, is it the policies, or is it the individual's resolve? I think it's all of the above. Each of us has a personal responsibility. The Republican Party has always been the party of opportunity of creating the environment where people can reach their full potential and move up the economic ladder. And that's very important to me, representing the state of Maine. I believe deeply in the power of education, in the ability of people to transform their own lives, but I also believe that public policy can create an environment where success is more likely. The tax bill is an example of that. Now, I've gotten a lot of criticism for supporting the tax bill, but the fact is that the tax bill gave a mother who's earning $35,000 a year with one child way more opportunity because it doubled the child tax credit and made it refundable. So now, instead of paying money into the federal government, she's actually getting some help back as she seeks to build a better life for herself and her children. Small businesses got their tax, taxes lowered. I've talked to businesses who've made investments in the state of Maine, hiring more employees, building uh, additional facilities, improving healthcare benefits, retirement benefits, and all of that is really helpful. Plus, the fact is that the United States had the highest corporate tax rate in the world. Well, all that did was encourage large corporations to locate their plants overseas. We don't want that. We want them to invest in America. So I know that the average Maine family received a tax break of $754, nearly 90% 
of Maine families received a tax break, uh, lower taxes, and 12,000 Maine families were removed from the tax rolls altogether as a result of the tax bill. That's the untold story, and it does make a difference. It's one of the reasons that we have the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years in Maine and in the country across all economic groups. I don't know if many in our national audience realize that you are a Phi Beta Kappa, which, took, which means that you take your education very seriously. It's also something that runs into your family. You are not the first. Uh, has education changed um, for kids today in public schools and private schools and charter schools? Is there a better, better educational model? Is there something you would take from your generation that you would use today or vice versa? What makes education work? It certainly is more than just about race. It's certainly more than just about class. And it's certainly more than about poverty and wealth. What is, what is the missing ingredient? Well, I was very fortunate growing up in Maine to have absolutely wonderful teachers who cared deeply about each and every student and helped us reach our full potential. And that is something that I think is, is common in this country. Um, I know there are some areas, particularly urban areas, I think of the District of Columbia, uh, where sometimes the schools are not as good as we would like them to be. And your ability to succeed in this world should not be determined by your zip code. It should be, there should be opportunities for, for everyone. One area that I think we need to take a close look at is how we can make higher education more affordable. And also, I think there has been a trend to assume that a four-year college education is the answer for everyone. And it's not. For some people, the trades can offer a wonderful opportunity to have a very good uh, lifestyle. Um, I help provide some federal seed money for a program at a community college in Northern Maine that specialized in precision machinists. Believe me, every single person who graduates from that program gets a good job, 100% placement rate. And so I think that we should respect not only education that comes from a traditional four-year college, but from a trade school, from apprenticeship programs. I saw a great program in Maine that was teaching uh, young people how to operate very complicated machinery that's used in logging in the woods. And again, those are good jobs. And this was a wonderful apprenticeship program. So I think what we need to do is to tailor education um, to the jobs that are out there to involve employers in the design of curriculum. Uh, the University of Maine has wonderful engineering programs that are doing that, for example. There are healthcare shortages in Maine and I've seen, and in the nation, and I've seen our colleges come together uh, to figure out how they can meet that demand. And we need to be more flexible. We need to realize 
that education truly is a lifelong experience and that we're all going to need to upgrade our skills and be lifelong learners. And that's why online learning is important and more flexibility by institutions of higher education in how they deliver education is important. You know, I, I really do find it fascinating. And I guess this can happen when you've started serving uh, in the Senate in, in the 90s, the different committees and the different um, uh, subcommittees that you've chaired, whether it's Homeland Security, whether it's in the financial area, uh, whether it's senior citizens. I mean, your your state has the oldest demographic of senior citizens uh, in, in, in the country. But, but what I really found interesting is your perspective and how it's evolved on immigration. It's not that anything that you've said has really changed. It's what I find fascinating is that you have been very consistent right. on immigration. Now, people like the label, but you've been consistent. I, I know they say you, sometimes they label you as a rhino, they label you uh, whatever, but you know, labors are just for those who are too lazy to really understand the depths of someone in their history and what they've evolved to. So I would really would like for you to explain, do you really believe that not only does immigration take away from kids who can learn, it takes away from people who otherwise would have jobs. What is, the, what is the place for immigration? What is the best immigration policy? Because I've seen positions you've supported with former President Obama, with President Trump, but those positions are consistent. Talk about the consistency of your immigration policy. I'm glad that you asked about that because I think this is a real challenge facing our country and that Congress needs to do a comprehensive immigration bill that includes um, several portions. One, it, we do need stronger border security and that's important as well so that those who have waited in line to come to this country uh, are not disadvantaged. We also need to remain a compassionate uh, country that recognizes that there are refugees in this world um, whom we need to help. Um, I also believe that the population that is known as the dreamers or the DACA population um, who are who were brought to this country through no decision of their own as small children, often age two, four, six, uh, and have known no other country, should not be penalized for the law-breaking of their parents in violating our immigration laws. They didn't make that decision. So I believe that we should offer, and I've always believed this, a path to citizenship for those young people. Now, they would have to show that they have a clean record, that they have either served in our armed forces or uh, received a college education or gone to a trade school. They're contributing to our society. But I'll never forget talking to someone from this population in Portland who had no idea that he was not an American. He has no memory of the country of El Salvador, and it would be cruel to send him back when he never made the decision to come here illegally. I was hoping a few years ago, two years ago actually, that we could come up 
with a combination of a border security bill that would give the president $2.5 billion each year for 10 years for everything from physical barriers where walls work, they don't work everywhere, sensors, more personnel, uh, the ability to build roads into remote areas, whatever the professionals at Homeland Security say is needed, and sort of have a trust fund approach so that that money would be there and could be spent over a 10-year period, and then combine that with a path to citizenship for the dreamer population. I think that would have been a very good package. And we did get it to the Senate floor with more than 50 votes, but we couldn't reach uh, the threshold of 60. You know, many people were introduced to you during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And again, in my extensive research, it was rare that you voted against any of former President Obama judges. It's rare you voted against any of President Trump's judges. It seems to me that you believe that is the prerogative of the President of the United States. And you show great respect and deference for their ability and the power that they have to choose the judges that reflects their value system, the direction they want the country to go. That's exactly right. I actually asked my staff recently uh, what percentage of President Obama's judicial nominees had I voted for, and it was 94%. That is exactly, as it happens, the same number that I voted for for President Trump. The Constitution is very clear that the president has the right to make nominations to the judiciary. And the role of the Senate is to, the advice and consent role, is for us to evaluate those nominees. That doesn't mean that I am going to agree with the political philosophy of all of the nominees that President Obama uh, nominated, but I voted for his two Supreme Court justices, and I voted for both of President Trump's Supreme Court justices. What I look for is are they qualified for the position? Do they have the ability to put aside their personal views and apply the law and the Constitution to the facts of the case? Are they people who uh, it will rule with integrity? And are they in the mainstream of judicial thought? And that, those are some of the criteria that I apply to nominees, regardless of what president has nominated them. Um, and that's what I did in this case as well. You know, the United States spend about $1.2 billion a week in Afghanistan and in Iraq. That's almost a $52 billion a year. That's a $1.2 billion burn rate a week. Uh, obviously, the president has shown tremendous restraint and not uh, advocating attacking Iran or attacking Afghanistan because it's somebody's 22-year-old son, 22-year-old daughter who, and, and, and in the theater of war, you have these landmines. And so, I mean, so when should we 
pull back, reduce our troop presence in these territories. Is there an idea formula? I mean, you've been here a long time. You've been involved with Homeland Security. And so what better person to ask this question than you? Each case is different. I've been to Afghanistan and Iraq four different times, and I always return with a sense of such gratitude to our troops and also such appreciation for our country and the freedoms that we have. And it is a different assessment each time. So I think the administration is right to be cautious in the approach that it's taking toward Iran, for example, and to listen to not only the military options, but also the diplomatic options. We have to be very careful that we do not take an action that leads to another war in the Middle East. And you're right, those are our sons and daughters that we are, are would be sending to those war zones. And that is one of the toughest decisions that any president can make. And it's a decision that should be made in concert with the Congress. Sometimes I think Congress likes to duck its responsibility. But our responsibility under the Constitution is very clear. And when we're not dealing with an emergency situation, um, it is Congress that should be involved in the authorization of the use of military force. So the president's hesitancy to use force, I appreciate because I want to make sure that force is really needed. I do think we need to restore a deterrent effect in uh, the Middle East. I'm very concerned that Iran is becoming increasingly aggressive, for example. And I liked the idea that some in the administration have proposed where our destroyers and aircraft carriers would escort uh, tankers through the straits and through uh, the navigational international waters uh, in order to send a message to Iran that they are not uh, to be attacking them or seizing them. And But I think as far as committing troops or taking kinetic action, uh, that the president's right to be cautious in that area. And um, as far as the drawdown of troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, that has begun. And eventually those countries need to be responsible for their own security, but it's a difficult uh, decision as far as how big a residual force do you leave there. Uh, I actually think that you probably are, the when we talk about freedom, no one is more free than you are in the United States Senate because they can't put you in a box. They can't pigeonhole you. They may add labels to you, but you're consistent, you're concise, and you're very thoughtful in the decisions that you make. And many Americans wish we had more Susan Collins in the United States.
Thank you for listening to this edition of Strongcast with our guest, the senior senator from Maine, Susan Collins.